Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. Nurses in America, organizing for health care justice, the fight for safe staffing, and why we need two-person crews driving a train that weighs 65,000 tons. Today on the show, National Nurses United and the Transportation Trades Department of the AFL-CIO. Welcome to the Monday, December 26th edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least six platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, and Stitcher. We have two guests on the show today. We're going to start things off with Jean Ross. Jean is an acute care registered nurse and member of National Nurses United. In fact, she's a one of three presidents in that role. Jean ranks among the nation's most prominent RN leaders and often represents and speaks for the organization on a broad range of topics that nurses champion, from establishing a single-payer health care system in the country by improving and expanding Medicare for All to reshifting our energy industry away from fossil fuels toward renewables in order to reverse climate disruption. She is a passionate advocate for social justice, grew up in the suburbs of Minneapolis, Minnesota, worked at the same medical center, Fairview Southdale Hospital, for 47 years. Well, she became active in the Minnesota Nurses Association in the wake of a very historic nurses strike. That goes back to 1984 when 6,000 Twin City Area nurses took to the picket lines to defend seniority rights. That's been a vigilant union ever since. In fact, their current president, Mary Turner, just announced a couple of weeks ago that uh, they ratified the nurses there, 15,000 of them, who uh, planned a strike. They were ready to walk out, and then all of a sudden the hospital system said, oh, okay, 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 we'll work it out. But anyway, this is the same organization that uh, Jean came from. She went on to hold the position of chief steward at her hospital for 20 years. And uh, 20 years ago, 2001, she helped lead a strike of Fairview nurses that achieved landmark contract language, allowing nurses to close a unit to new patients when it was too understaffed for them to provide safe care. So what we're going to talk about today, organizing. Nurses have been fighting for their patients and strong contracts, even while saving lives and advocating for public health on the front lines of COVID-19. Number of victories, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about healthcare justice. Now, nurses not only care for their patients, they're constantly, constantly advocating for them in their facilities and communities. Major part of the work as patient advocates, again, Medicare for all, and also safe staffing levels. This is something that's been legislated in a number of states, California for one, <laughs> but but a lot of hospitals are ignoring that. And Gene uh, is going to talk about that. This is one powerful union. Just go to uh, National Nurses. Nationalnurses.org is their website. And uh, they have chapters all around America. 
Our second guest on the show today is Greg Regan, longtime supporter of America's Workforce. He is president of the Transportation Trades Department of the AFL-CIO. TTD.org is their website. Greg is going to talk about the rail industry. As you know, we have a contract for the rail workers. There's like 12 unions there. There was a possibility of a strike, but uh, the government came in and said, no, you can't do that. you got to accept the uh, contract, even though it didn't include more uh, sick days. I think maybe one day was included on that. But there was an effort in the halls of Congress to add seven days. And uh, it did get some support from senators, but not enough. They needed 60, and 43 senators and 207 House Republicans decided not to go with the uh, workers and sided with the billion-dollar rail corporations. We'll talk about that. Also, we're going to talk about Two-person crews. This is so darn important because you don't want to see one person in charge of a train that weighs 65,000 tons. And that's essentially what Greg testified before Congress a couple of weeks ago. That train could be a mile long. And you know what? When there's one person and you got all that weight, when accidents happen, it could be a very tragic accident. In fact, we'll talk about what happened in Canada some years ago. But uh, there's been a push by the rail industry to go to one-person crews so they can save money. That's what this is all about. But uh, this testimony, hopefully, it's going to sink in and they won't go that direction. Greg Regan, Transportation Trades Department, will be joining us to button up the show. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to check in with Gene Ross, president of National Nurses United. This is America's Workforce. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Liuna at liuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The, the United, United Steelworkers. Steel the largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in, in the, the U.S., US Canada, Canada, and the, the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steel workers, standing strong and fighting for what's right. The AFL-CIO is a proud sponsor of America's Workforce Radio. United by efforts to raise wages, listeners to this show and workers all across America are beginning to turn a corner and drive the economic debate. The AFL-CIO is comprised of 12.5 million working people, but we stand with and fight for everyone who is working for a better life. For more information about our Raising Wages agenda, go to AFLCIO.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And don't forget, you can check us out on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Twitter handle, real simple, AWF Union Podcast. Make sure you get the word union in there. All right, let's go to our live line right now. And joining us from Minnesota is Gene Ross. And I'll tell you, this is one organization that I have referenced many times over the years. We've had several of their people on. I'm talking about National Nurses United. NationalNursesUnited.org 
is their website. They have more than 175,000 members nationwide, and they are the largest union and professional association of registered nurses in U.S. history. And now, Gene Ross, one of three presidents, is joining us on our live line. Gene Ross, welcome to America's Workforce. How are we doing today? I'm doing just great. The weather here is beautiful, and I'm happy to be on your program. I see uh, you grew up in the suburbs of Minneapolis, Minnesota, worked at the same medical center, Fairview Southdale Hospital, 47 years, became active in the Minnesota Nurses Association, we're going back to uh, 1984, and boy, there was a lot that went on back then. And in 2009, National Nurses United was formed. Here's where I want to start. There's a th- you're one of three presidents, and that kind mm-hmm. of uh, piqued my interest. Uh, usually, there's one president, but you got to explain that. Are there different territories you cover? How does that work? Well, it's it's a concept that sort of came about uh, because when we put together in 2009 National Nurses United, it was two nationals and uh, a state that came together to form a group. So very often when you do that, you have uh, just kind of written in uh, more than one president to kind of give each group um, a say and a voice. And uh, the largest member of National Nurses United, which is California Nurses, National Nurses Organizing Committee, or CNA and NOC, already worked with what they call the Council of Presidents. They have four. And we really do think it works better than having one president. We have an executive director who is also a nurse, Bonnie Castillo, and she's on, on top of everything as we are. And we believe that several heads are better than one. And we do, as you say, cover different parts of the United States. And that's just kind of a a reflection of, of where we live. I live in the Midwest. The other two presidents right now are on the West Coast in California, but it doesn't have to be. We have a slate of presidents and they can live anywhere in the country. So we do stints of six months apiece to be the current or main president, and we fill in as, as is necessary, and it works very, very well for us. Good, good, good. Maybe uh, we should uh, rethink our politics. Well, I guess it depends who's president, too. <laughs> if, sure if we're going to go, we're gonna go two or three. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'm, I don't want to get into that conversation. I want to talk about how you're doing. And I'll tell you, we talked a whole lot about the nurses, especially the last couple of years with uh, COVID-19. And I know mm-hmm. a lot of nurses are not with us today, mainly because they stayed on the job. They were they got sick along with so many other people. They did not have the personal protective equipment that they asked for or didn't get it in time. Just wondering, I know this was a very troublesome time for you and the organization. Looking back and where we are today, how would you gauge everything, Gene? Well, I have to say that even to those of us that are most what I consider jaded or really aware of what was really going on in healthcare and with our careers, uh, we were stunned, absolutely stunned. Because as, uh, as little credit as we give to our employers, we thought that for their sake alone, I mean, they always say they care about the patients. Well, nobody really cares about the patients but us. They, they care about the income um, and their profits. But we really thought that they would give us the things that we needed 
to keep us safe to do our jobs, to take care of those patients, and thereby keep their blessed profits coming. We really thought that that would happen, and uh, we were wrong. We, we overestimated them. And unfortunately, I can see right now, we all can, that it isn't getting a whole lot better. We have the supplies we need, but it's, it's kind of a, uh, a fact because of where the virus is right now and that we aren't in the throes of that beginning surge, like when um, New York was, was doing so badly and so many people were dying so quickly. But we've got nurses now who they say, you know, our employers included, were heroes. And we shouldn't have had to fight so hard to get that equipment that we needed. They're not learning from it. Um, some nurses are starting to have to fight again for that equipment. And the hospital employers do not want to pay. They don't want to keep it stocked. They're still addicted to this just-in-time scheduling, just-in-time supply of the equipment that we need. And you'll see many of us right now who are in the uh, we're right in the midst of bargaining and things that we're asking for to tie these things down in our contract. They are not uh, for for coming in giving us those things. Nurses mm-hmm. are having to strike. So in this day and age, when we've seen what happened with the pandemic, we shouldn't be having to strike to get those things. No, doesn't make sense. Is part of the reason the healthcare system itself, and let me elaborate on that, because uh, I've been doing this show for a long time. It's going to be 24 years now. And what we have seen over the last maybe decade or two is Wall Street. You see these hedge funds, and and I've seen it in my industry in broadcasting. I go, I go, my, I go back as long as you were a nurse. I go back 49 years, okay? And I go. saw... I have seen what Wall Street did to broadcasting and still doing right. it, and, and they've hollowed right. it out. They've streamlined it. A lot of good people are no longer in it. Same with the healthcare profession. I'm just wondering, is that part of the problem as far as you're concerned? It is the problem. You, there are certain things that uh, you know, we believe are, are just plain good for the public, And we look at ourselves as uh, looking out for the public's health. That's what we do. And so whereas some things you can put a capitalist bent on, for example, clothing, cars, maybe I don't want a government-made car. But when it comes to something like health care and the media, I'm sorry, but the news, the airwaves belong to all of us, it should be that it's for the public good. And when you introduce profits, and, and profit is the only thing that makes a difference. You get what we have now, which is what we've been harping on for years as nurses. And if you didn't see it before the pandemic, you see it now. I mean, our health outcomes, our mortality rates uh, among other uh, industrialized nations is very, very poor. We're at the bottom. This is what happens when you put money over people. So is the answer, and I know you want to address this, I know National Nurses United has been at the forefront of Medicare for All, which would take the Medicare mm-hmm. system that we have, and it's been a very successful program since 1965, and, and pretty much expand it. That would probably take out a big chunk of the insurance company. So what 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 uh, what needs, is that what we're, we need to go? Is Is that the direction for the country, in your opinion? 
that's the way we have to be headed. I mean, and anybody that tells you different is just blowing smoke. I mean, they've tried everything else. I mean, that's why we're down to denying care. If you want your profits to keep going up, and there is no such thing as an okay, all right profit, it's the sky's the limit. The only way you can do that, they've tried everything else, and we're down to denying care. This is the logical conclusion of the system that we have. And I think if people didn't see it before the pandemic, they do see it now. This is, this is what it leads to. When you've got, and I, and I want to clarify, when we talk about Medicare for All, we, we mean a new and improved Medicare for All because there are some flaws in our system. And even other countries that have a, a universal health care system would say there are things that they could improve on. So we use Medicare for All because everybody understands and loves Medicare. Uh, those that are on it now those that have seen it for their parents, those that are looking forward to it as they age. Um, that's the kind of system we need where everybody gets not just adequate health care, but the best health care. We are the richest country in the world. There's no reason why when others who are much worse off than we are uh, do it, we can't do it. It's, it's just we need the political motivation to do it, and it will happen. I used to say before I retired, now I say I hope to see it before I die, but it will happen. <laughs> well, I hear you on that one. Wait, when you say improve Medicare, what, what are you talking about? Maybe get rid of the copay part? What, what, or is, that, is that one of the components or what? There are several things. Um, for one thing, you know, you have Part A, the hospitalizations, et cetera, that's covered and you don't have to pay for it. But uh, Part B, you do, and it depends on your income and that wasn't the concept when it was first thought of. I mean, it needs to be paid for. We pay for other things that we need out of our taxes, right? But if we say there will be an education system for every uh, person in this country, then we fund it. If we say there will be fire and police protection, um, then we fund it. It should be the same for health care. Um, so drugs should be covered. And there's an awful, awful scam going on now with this Medicare Advantage actually pushing um, single plans, uh, single payer um, plans from private employers and calling it part of Medicare, which it is not, and it's depleting money from Medicare. That needs to change. Mm -hmm. uh, people are getting snowed by that all the time. So there are improvements to be made, but the biggest improvement would be you're born, you have it. None yeah. of this waiting till you're 65. That needs to happen. So, okay, let's just pick up from there. What, what do we need to do? Obviously, uh, we have the Affordable Care Act. You know what a pain in the butt that was mm -hmm. to move forward and the attacks mm -hmm. on it still to this day. Um, is this like looking for a new Congress, new president? I, 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 help me out on this, Gene. Where, where do we go from here? Well, I think both. And, and when it comes to a new president, you know, anybody who's in, in power, whether it be senator representative, president, uh, cabinet member, they can all be pressured. And when we have enough of us that want it, um, you make your wants known and they can be pressured. That's, that's the only way things have ever moved in this country. You know, you go back to things like the Civil Rights Act. You know, that was groundswell, grassroots, not somebody paying people to go, like some of our very wealthy people trying to make a movement, but a real grassroots movement. And we have that started with the Medicare for, for all folks. There are people all over the country that are hopping on board and asking us, you know, I'm not a nurse, but can't I help? Well, absolutely. 
everybody can help and needs to. So we need that political will to pressure whoever is in office. And yes, I think enough. Um, well, I don't hold much hope for re- a Republican Congress because they seem to not want to do anything but take rights away. Mm-hmm. But I think you could look at uh, even, you know, the most recent Roe versus Wade decision. We are making our uh, wishes known that, you know, people are women and others are not going to stop fighting. The majority of us in, our, in this country are very, very tired of minority rule. We're not going to put up with it anymore. And so if you keep that on the forefront, and we, as an organization, as a union, will do that. We don't stop. Nurses do not stop fighting for their patients. So we will keep it up, and our allies will, and it will happen. But, yes, it, I think it's going to take a new, new members in Congress and the right kind. I'm so glad you brought that up. Minority rule. And it seems like one side is just a little more vocal than the other and and nasty to some degree. Is that what seems to be confusing people, the general public, on issues like Medicare for all? Well, sure it does. And, And you mentioned the media takeover. I mean, I'm sorry, but when you don't really print and air what's really going on and what the majority of people think when you keep interviewing people in diners in the Midwest and rural America as to what they think instead of what the majority of the people say, um, then you'll get realistic polls and people will uh, understand and hear what's really going on. Then, of course, you've got the right-wing media who who tends to um, brainwash. We've seen where that has led us. Um, a lot of things have to change, and the, and the media is one of them. But we know you. we are the majority. We are, and go. we will keep fighting. Gene Ross, one of three presidents of National Nurses United, nationalnursesunited.org is their website. Very, very good website. And you can participate and be vocal on that website and call your member of Congress for Medicare for All and other issues. We'll continue the conversation. We'll get into organizing and gender justice right after this. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferens. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. Hello from the Communication Workers of America, District 4. We are a labor union representing a vast array of workers in different industries, including the Association of Flight Attendants, Telecommunications, CWA Passenger Services, Public Health Care, and Education Workers, the IUE, CWA Industrial Division, the National Association of Broadcast Employees, the CWA News Guild, not to mention our growing digital sector, and many others. If you're interested in organizing your work group or learning more about what it means to be CWA strong, visit our website at www.cwad4.org. That's cwad4.org. 
America's Workforce Radio is sponsored in part by the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, District Council 6, representing painters, glazers, drywall finishers, and sign and display industry workers. They remind you that belonging to a union is your right as an American. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrance with America's Workforce. And don't forget, you can check us out on at least six platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, and the platform known as Stitcher. And when you get an opportunity, here's what you do. Just sign up, receive our shows on a regular basis, and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings, so please keep them coming. Let's go back to our uh, live line today. Joining us from the state of Minnesota is Jean Ross. She is a president, actually one of three presidents for National Nurses United. They have an executive director and three presidents, and they cover various regions. Uh, They were formed back in 2009, and they had a bang-up year as soon as they they formed. They organized 6,500 RNs in Florida, Illinois, Iowa, Nevada, and Texas in that first year it was really good. Good job on behalf of organized. I want to touch on that, but Gene, I want to get into and you kind of referenced this in the first segment: gender justice and uh, mm-hmm. Amer- America's changing. There's a lot of people that don't want to see it going in that direction, but apparently uh, there's an effort by courts to kind of thwart that. And I just like to get your opinion because, like I said. Before, nurses are very vocal. They're on the front lines. They're essential workers. We need nurses. And they see what's going on in America. So talk to me about gender justice. Go ahead. We don't have it yet. <laughs> and, and they're working to take what, what we do have and, and trash that. So, you know, we, we demand and, and we always work toward reproductive justice. We're not going to tolerate these assaults. Um, we fight collectively always have it's the only thing that does work and we will not stop until we restore the the basic health care service to everyone in the united states we remain a predominantly female profession so you can imagine what we think about these latest developments um i mentioned before we don't go we don't give up we just don't relent uh, i've had people say to me boy you're just like a you're relentless aren't you and i'm like we have to be it's the only thing that ever has worked. So we fight, um, you know, our protests, which anything that's very visible, and also in through our union contracts. That's that's another way we fight. Uh, and we, we look for all forms of, of social justice. We look for, for measures that help diversify our nursing workforce because we're still not as diversified as we need to be. And that means by race and economic background. Um, things that people that we work with, our patients, um, should demand nothing less. Our, our healthcare system, if you want to call it one, um, is just a patchwork, and it it denies and gives poorer care to people of color, especially women, and that's been, you know, forever, and that needs to change. It just has to be with or without the latest development in Roe versus Wade. You uh, talked about um, Medicare for all before. Would that oh. kind of equalize things in in healthcare if we went in that direction and 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 deal with the gender justice that you're referencing? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and it did. If you want to talk about one of the biggest um, forces of change 
for people of color, it would have to be Medicare, right? That's my understanding because I was quite young then. But when it came into being, um, that was one of the things that especially Republicans railed against, you know, that they had separate but equal. Well, if, if everybody at 65 gets it, they don't ask what sex you are and what race you are. Everybody gets it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the things that we've done in this country, the good things that are under attack right now, like Medicare for all, Social Security, all, all those things, they are very equalizing. And that's just one of the many reasons we need to to achieve that for um, health care justice. Gene, I want to talk about organizing. As you well know, we're seeing a mm-hmm. whole lot of organizing going on on various levels in, in places we probably never thought they would organize. And I think the pandemic had a lot to do with that. Well, let me say that again. I know the pandemic had a lot to do with that because these workers, they were deemed heroes and then they were zeros. Actually, that comes from the food and commercial workers. We had one of the uh, local presidents on telling me, he says, I thought of that line. (laughs) They used it all over it. It's so, it's so real. I mean, all of a sudden, you know, you know what? You did okay. Just deal with it. We're, you know, this is a pandemic. No big deal. Do your job and shut up. Uh, and if you get sick, well, people get sick all the time. I mean, this is the attitude that's out there. You know that. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of these folks are very vocal now. Starbucks, Amazon, I could go on. Many retail outlets. Uh, the media, too. Media seeing a lot of uh, uh, organizing going on. How are we doing with nurses? Let's let's start right there. Where where are we right now? You did pretty good right out of the gate. What's uh, what's the game plan here, Jean? Well, I have to warn you. I don't have a lot of humility when it comes to our organizing. I think we do a really good job, and I think we've gone into places. Some of those that you've mentioned earlier, where maybe other unions, well, not maybe. I know that wouldn't go because. They were right-to-work states, and you can't get anything done there. There's too much pressure against you. But the nurses that have pretty much begged for help, um, they deserve a union just like any other worker in the country. And it's so important for future patients in this country to have nurses that are unionized, that have a contract, because we have uh, morally and ethically, there are certain things we need to do. That's what makes us a nurse. If you ask people what do nurses do I think most people would say well they take care of sick people and they they teach you know health to prevent illness yes true the main part though the main thing that we do is the part of our job that says you will advocate for that patient you absolutely will that's your job well when you're faced with an employer that won't give you enough staff won't give you equipment does things that you and they know are unhealthy unsterile whatever the situation you want to lose your job? I mean, if you stand up and say, I can't possibly take care of seven patients at a time. That's not safe. That's not fair to them. Certainly isn't fair to me. You could lose your job if you don't have something to rely on like a union contract. And mm-hmm. nurses have. Just like any other worker who stood up for him or herself. So uh, it's very, very important that we organize those nurses for that reason and, and all of the others that you can think of. They deserve to have a union contract that lets them have a good work-life balance that keeps them and the patients safe and keeps the public safe. So to that end, we will go where we need to go. So we've been all over. We've been to Tucson, Minnesota, Asheville, Maine, D.C., Illinois, 
California. I mentioned Florida and Texas. Very, very difficult in those right-to-work states. And wherever there's a VA, we have um, VA hospitals across the country that we represent. You talked about nurse-to-patient ratios, and I know uh, National Nurses United has been vocal on that many, many times. Uh, What should be the ratio? You you just mentioned like seven patients. I've heard that there's some facilities that's over 10. Uh, What should it be? Yeah, more than that. Well, what it should be depends on what unit you're working in. Obviously, if you're in an intensive care unit, you need to look at fewer, watch over fewer patients than if you work on a medical surgical unit. Uh, trauma requires more nurses, often ER. Uh, luckily for us, we have professional organizations in each of those specialties that lays out their recommendations, and we use that in uh, the law that we unfortunately only have in California right now, the racial law, and it spells those ratios out. And it also says that on the judgment of the registered nurse, that is just the bottom. So if the legislation would say, for example, that on a medical surgical unit, you can have no more than, let's say, five patients, because I'm not sure what the ratio is right now. That means that if I arrive on that unit and three of my patients do not speak English and one of them is going down the tubes and I know should be transferred like right now to the cardiac unit or to OR, I would say I don't care what the ratio uh, is is per law in this situation I should have no fewer than no more than three patients that mm-hmm. judgment of the nurses is, is always got to be there um, and that's what keeps patients safe so it depends on the unit that you're in it depends on your judgment but it should never ever be be more than uh, what we have laid out in the law so is that a state-by-state thing then, with nurse-to-patient ratio, or, or is that more of a national issue that you're pushing Well, we have, legis- we have legislation put forward nationally, and we also try. Uh, just like any other, most other laws, you try state-by-state. State. But, you know, the fact that we got it in California, and it's been so successful, and they can't deny that success. Unfortunately, what employers do in the industry is uh, band together to make sure that it won't happen in any other state. A uh-huh. uh, few have gotten it in contract language, but by and large, it's it's got to be federal legislation. It really does. I hear you. Because really, it shouldn't it shouldn't depend on where you live in this country. You should get no. the same good care that we can give to people, no matter where you live. Gene, we got a couple minutes left here. I, I just want to talk. We'll go back to organizing here. You're at about 175,000 plus, and I, I did check the internet, and I see there's like 2.9 million RNs in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how accurate that is. You know, everything on the internet is true, right? But anyway, uh, I'm just wondering. You got there's a lot of nurses that need to be organized, and here we are in 2022, and like I said, a lot of organizing going on. Do you have any goals in mind? I mean, there's there's a lot that needs to join the National Nurses United. What's your what's your take on that? Well, we we organize in many ways. We definitely all those ner- nurses need a good union contract, and we believe we have the best ones. Um, that will take care of both that nurse and her patients. But we also organize the general public. Um, that's, you mentioned our website. Uh, we have petitions on there. We have places that, uh, where people can help because they believe in the same goals that we do. 
um, you want a good, strong, assertive nurse caring for you if you have to be in the hospital. Everybody understands that. If they've ever been in the hospital themselves or had a family member in there, you know why. Uh, We are the ones that are there 24-7. We need to be able to fight for people, that ability to fight and uh, still maintain our our job status comes from having a good union contract and enforcing it. And so that's one of the things we work on as we talk to nurses across the country, even if we're not at that moment organizing the hospital that they're in. And that's why we have members across the country that aren't yet in a union contract, but also help with uh, lobbying and legislation in their states to help them get what they can until they can get a union contract. Sure. Well, if the nurse is protected, which they are with the union contract, then the patient is protected. And that's what we want. That's what we want in America. Makes sense. Gene Ross, I really thank you for your time here on America's Workforce. It's been a delightful conversation. Let's keep the conversation going down the road. I I love what National Nurses United has done over the years, and there's a lot more you can do. And hopefully with the help of a show like this, we can get it done. How's that sound? That sounds wonderful, and I thank you for having us on. NationalNursesUnited.org. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Greg Regan is president of the Transportation Trades Department of the AFL-CIO, and he will be coming up next. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Layuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of Layuna, the Laborers' International Union of North America delivering critical services such as health care and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with LIUNA. Find out what it takes for LIUNA to keep America running at LIUNA.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at voidwaterson.com. The Heat and Frost Insulators and Allied Workers are proud to be a title sponsor for America's Workforce Radio. The Insulators Union is leading the way in the mechanical insulation industry, fire stopping, and infectious disease control. Regarded as North America's energy conservation specialist, these professionals are known for their professional work and dedication. You can learn more about the Insulators Union at insulators.org. This segment of America's Workforce is brought to you by Survey and Ballot Systems. SBS has been providing unions with secure and flexible election options for over 30 years. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com to learn more. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast, AWF Union Podcast. Let's go to Washington right now and join one of our regulars, longtime regulars. This is a segment we do each and every month with the Transportation Trades Department of the AFL-CIO website. Real simple, ttd.org, ttd.org. And the president of the Transportation Trades Department is Mr. Greg Regan. And I'll tell you. It's been an interesting year, last couple of months, all occupied with rail. And it's not over yet. Now they're fighting over bringing down two-person crews to one person. But first and foremost, Greg, welcome to the show. 
Uh, talk to me about this this contract that uh, it got it got pretty ugly there toward the end. And uh, I know the president tried to do what he could. Marty Walsh was part of the the uh, contract talks back in September. Maybe we could just pick it up there and what happened here in the last couple of months because I know there's some people that are not happy. But, you know, not everybody is happy in a contract negotiation. Let's be honest here. You've been through these many, many times. So yeah. how, how, do, how, do things, how do things look right now, Greg? Yeah, look, I, I, um, th- this was a really difficult round of negotiations, probably the most difficult I can, uh, I can remember. And I know that people are disappointed. I know that there was a, you know, we, we certainly there's stuff that, that could have been accomplished that was, that was not. Um, you know, I think the board missed the boat on, uh, the President's Emergency Board missed the boat on the sick day issue. Uh, but, I, but I also think that when we're looking forward, and, and ultimately if you look backwards on this contract uh, and lessons learned from it, we need to be focusing the blame where it belongs, which is on the railroad. Uh, most of the issues that were that people are angry about, the quality of life issues, and justifiably angry about, even sickly, the tenants policy, all of these issues go back to one simple reason, and it's that the railroads have laid off a third of their workforce, 45,000 people over the last seven years, and they are instituting these types of policies and not giving people access to their leave because they need every single existing employee to work as much as possible just to keep the bare minimum of service going at the railroad. So if we are going to solve this problem moving forward, if we're going to make sure that we have a better round next time in terms of the contract, we need to start to fundamentally reform the railroad industry. That is the most important thing we can do right now. Now, I know there were some senators that were on the right side, and then there's some senators and House members. I I saw them in a release, which is posted on your website. Shame on the 43 senators and 207 House Republicans who abandoned the working class and sided with the billion-dollar rail corporations. Because of them, President Biden is not able to sign a resolution that guarantees seven days of paid sick leave to all rail workers. Now, that being said, and we had a conversation recently with Fred Redmond, Secretary-Treasurer of the AFL-CIO, and he said, you know what, we got to continue on this fight. And we got we to gotta make sure that everybody, not just the rail workers, I mean, there's a lot of people that take time off because they're sick that don't get paid at all, many of them in the hospitality industry. So going into, and I know it's going to be difficult, especially with the change in Congress, but looking forward here, will that become an issue to discuss in, in the new year, Greg? What, what's your take on that? I think it certainly will be an issue to discuss. And I, you know, what you heard, what uh, Mr. Redmond said, it's exactly what, uh, you know, the president and what Marty Wallace and others have said is that this, it shined a light on a critical issue in this industry, but also a fundamental injustice in this country that there are millions of people who do not have access to paid sick leave, hardworking people who are simply being beaten down by the, the, the structures that have existed here, one that is just designed to get every penny out of your uh, out of your your labor in order to create the biggest profit. So I think we are we are certainly not going to stop this fight for rail workers. But I also you know when if there is an area where we can lend a hand to other people who need um, need these fundamental rights, I would argue um, we are going to lend a hand there too. So I, I think that mm-hmm. we're going to continue to keep this fight going, um, just in the context of the rail rail side. I mean yes. So Congress had the opportunity to give them seven days of paid sick leave. The House passed it. uh, The Senate did not. And they had that opportunity to go above and beyond what the Presidential Emergency Board 
um, recommended. And, and, you know, we're not going to forget the people who, who voted for it or against it. Um, and frankly, there's a couple of senators who voted for it that I'm still scratching my head about. So, you know, I look forward to working closely with our new allies of working of the working people when uh, Senator Cruz, Senator Holly, and Senator Rubio there, who, who for once, I guess, grew a conscience when it came to, to the play of working people. Okay, Greg, let's stop right there, because don't you think that they voted for that in support of workers, knowing that there wouldn't be enough votes down the road? Don't don't you think that that, that might have been the issue there? 100%. Look, my tongue is firmly planted in my cheek when I said that. It, it, it is. I, I don't think that they have at all grown a conscience of these, these issues, but... I assure you, we're going to have a lot of legislation next year that will be introduced that will benefit rail workers, that will be pro-worker legislation. And I look forward to going to every one of their offices and saying, hey, you voted with us last year. How about you take a look at this one? And and we'll, yeah. we'll find out where they really stand. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of equate that to uh, in the state of Ohio. We record the show at Iron Workers Local 17 in Cleveland, Ohio, and we always get some nasty Republicans that want – to say, you got to have right to work. You got to have right to work. All the states around Ohio are going right to work. And they know it's not going to happen. They know it's not going to happen, but they're, you know, they're obviously preaching to their base to make sure that those gerrymandered districts that they're in are going to stay that way and keep them in office. So that's kind of the politics behind of what's going on here. But that being said, I mean, getting back to this, and I know you want to talk about uh, the fact that we got to keep two-person crews going here but the workers did get a pay raise and i'm reading it's the biggest wage increase in 45 years that is a good thing but still we're talking about work-life balance here and i think we're seeing that all over workers today i mean yeah they're they're making money wages have gone up of course you're dealing with inflation but you got to have time off if, if you're sick and i know in the rail situation there was one individual who canceled a doctor's appointment, and uh, he ended up dying on the train because they wanted him to work, and that was the the rally cry on that one. But anyway, let's move on to the uh, the two person crews here, and I understand that there was a hearing recently. So <laughs> all I can say is scary. One person, and and you got how many hundreds of thousands of tons of metal behind that one person. This is a scary scenario. Greg, why are we going down this road? Well, let's be clear. We're, we've, this is finally, the Federal Railroad Administration is finally doing a rule, um, and this goes back to you know, the end of the, the Obama administration, to set the baseline that, that a minimum of two people are on, are, are on every single freight train. And that is one that, frankly, it's the way they operate right now. The railroads have tried to make this into a collective bargaining issue and tried to negotiate a way to limit the crew size and to go further down from two to one person. And our position is this is a safety issue. It's fundamentally a safety issue. It should not be something that should even be considered at the bargaining table. And it needs to be regulated to mandate that this is um, the only safe way to operate a freight rail network. And I'm, I think that what the uh, administration is doing right now is, is a really important step and one that hopefully means that we can put this issue to bed for our once and for all. 65,000 tons. That's how much a freight train can weigh. 65,000 tons average over a mile long, and they want to go with the one person. So your testimony, which happened a couple of weeks ago, how was it received, yeah. Greg? I 
thought it was well received. I mean, you know, they we are I think we have the facts on our side on this one. And, you know, when we make a, a very um, you know, factual uh case for why this is necessary, when we have, you know, my my brothers at the at the Brotherhood of Railway, uh, I'm sorry, the locomotive engineers and the smart transportation, when they talk about their experience, how you operate a train, why you need two people out there. Um, I think when you put all of our arguments together compared to what the railroads did, it's a no-brainer that, that the facts are on our side and that this is a common-sense safety regulation that needs to be put into place. So I look forward to yeah. this rule being finalized very soon. We should point out, too, that a lot of the safety laws we have in our country, history has shown they come after something tragically happens. And I want to reference here, and I saw this in your testimony, maybe you can... Uh, Talk more about this to our listeners. Going back to uh, Quebec, 2013. This was a runaway train, and I guess they were well, they were carrying crude oil. Can you give us uh, give us some details? What happened back then, Greg? Yeah, it was a um, single person uh, operated locomotive parked a train on a hill. Um, they did not, you know, it, again where you have two people. Usually, you have a d- double check to make sure that everything is secured properly. Uh, unfortunately, that didn't happen here, and the train rolled backwards and, and destroyed a town and, and killed a lot of people. Um, that is, the Canada, you know, the Canadian government learned the lesson and immediately in- implemented uh, a minimum of two people on every freight train. We cannot wait for a similar type of accident to happen in this country before we learn the lessons that we should have already learned. Um, mm-hmm. And as someone who represents aviation workers and maritime workers and others, I mean, if you look at the FAA, too many of these important safety regulations, whether it be fatigue rules for pilots or, or training requirements, they were implemented after major catastrophes. And why would we sit around and wait for something like that to happen in rail before we institute um, meaningful safety regulation? Yeah, yeah, because they just care about profits, the industry. That's all they care about at this point. You know, uh, the other issue, you and I have talked about this uh, over over the past year, this positive train control, PTC, and apparently they're just using the technology here and they're trying to make the rail system more efficient. Is that like something that's not going to be changed? Is that in place for good here now? Is there something any? Is there something the TTD can do about this? Yeah, look, I, we support, I think PTC is an important technological advancement, but it, it cannot be used as a way to try to substitute um, you know, workforce and, and, and the skilled workers who actually know how to operate the train. One of the things that, and I've seen this in a lot of places, in, in, in transit as well, um, but certainly in rail, where, you know, companies get some sort of new technological toy and they think, wow, this is, this is great. Uh, uh-huh. what, they should, what they should be doing is saying, how do we make sure that our new advancement in technology can augment the expertise of our workers and create a further safer system? And so that makes sure that we are helping the workers to be to more safely operate whatever system they're on. But too often the bosses look at this and they say, "Okay, we got this new toy. How do we lower our headcount? How does how do we make this? How do we allow this to make us more money? And that's Uh just the complete wrong way to approach any of these issues. And it's one that we're going to be fighting not only right now, but but for years to come as we see more and more um, technology be developed in these areas. Yeah, you want the technology to help the workers, not replace them. That's what it's all about. But uh, 
the uh, the bosses have a different attitude on this one. All right, Greg, a couple of minutes left here, just a few days left in uh, 2022. Maybe you can kind of give us a quick uh, rundown. We covered the rail extensively. I mean, you you cover so many unions, over three do- three dozen unions that deal with transportation. Um, how did we fare? I, I, maybe you can give it a grade. I don't know. I'm, I might be putting you on the spot here. But how did we fare this year, and how do we look going into next year, especially with the uh, political changes? Yeah, I think we fared extremely well. And I, you have to sort of look back two years here uh, for the totality of this Congress. If you look at the major pieces of legislation that were passed with pro-worker policies at the core of these pieces of legislation, uh, I don't think we've had a more successful pro-worker two years, in, certainly in my career. Uh, just the infrastructure law alone, which is something that uh, you know every president since Eisenhower basically has been trying to do, we finally got it done. And you're going to start to see the benefits of that as the money is rolling out. You know, it started to go out a little bit, but next year especially, we're really going to see, um, you know, start, uh, uh, we're going to start delivering on this on this money and start seeing it go out into communities and creating jobs and, and getting more workforce training, all of those things we, we were arguing for. Um, and then, of course, you know, the, the Inflation Reduction Act was a big win. The rescue plan was a big win. Um, I think that we got about as many pieces of big legislation in two years um, out of any Congress. You know, you probably have to go back to FDR to see that many big pieces of legislation passed in such a short period of time. Um, obviously, we're going to have a much bigger challenge next year. Uh, I don't think, you know, with the Republican control of the House, I think, you know, passing big pieces of legislation is not really going to be on the table. Um, but where we are going to be focused is making sure that everything is implemented in the right way, making sure that the pro-worker policies that were buried into the laws are really delivered when it comes to these programs being rolled out and the checks being written. And we need to hold agencies accountable, the ones who are actually receiving the funds. We need to hold private actors accountable, the ones who are going to benefit from the funds. Um, all of these things put together, you know, our, our focus is just going to slightly shift towards okay, we wanted, we argued for really important policies. We argued to get really big things done. Now it's our opportunity to actually prove that what we argued for uh, can become a reality. So we can actually make sure that we have a modern transportation system and one that also delivers really good jobs and delivers safety and grows the union membership across the country. And that's what the American people want. Greg Regan, thank you so much. Greg Regan, president of the Transportation Trades Department of the AFL-CIO. You want to get some more information, you can read his testimony, too, from uh, December 14th at ttd.org. You take care. Enjoy the New Year's, and we'll talk to you in January. Okay, my brother? All right. Thanks, Flash. Always a pleasure. That'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce. Tomorrow we'll check in with our independent labor voice, Tom Buffenbarger, and a heat and frost insulators. That'll be Local 6 in Boston. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful day. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce Radio Podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.